morning, we continue looking in Genesis 17. Our focus will be verses 9 through 14. You have them in your bulletin or you can follow along in your own copy of God's Word. Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. Give your attention to God's holy and inspired Word. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Amen. Let's ask the Lord blessing upon this passage. Our faithful Lord, we thank you for scripture. We thank you for the assurance that all scripture is God-breathed and is therefore profitable for us as your people uh, to both rebuke us and to build us up, to train us for godliness. We pray that you would help us as we consider these words this morning. You would indeed remind us again of your faithfulness, your steadfast love, your covenant mercy. We pray, O Father, that you would Help us all to remember that we belong to you. We have your promises given to us, signed and sealed to us. And so be with us now as we consider these words. Write them on our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible exists to reveal to us the true character of the one true God. And without the Bible, we wouldn't have... a a salvific understanding of God. That is to say, as I prayed earlier, from the creation around us, we can learn much about God's character, God's nature. We can learn about his eternal power, uh, his divine Godhead. That's what Romans 1 tells us. We, We can't help but see that because we're made in God's image. And we receive his revelation that's around us in creation. But the scriptures we have as God's gift to us a revelation of his holy and righteous will for our salvation. We have in the words of God, uh, God's own self-revelation. And we learn there that he is a God who is both holy and righteous, as well as merciful and gracious. And if there's one place in all of history and in all of scripture where we see God's mercy and his holiness... His, his, his grace and his righteousness on display in ultimate clarity, it's the cross of Christ where Jesus dies under the judgment of a righteous God taking the condemnation that we have earned for our sins and where he dies as the means through which God will show mercy to the ungodly. As the psalmist tells us, it's at the cross where the righteousness of God and the peace that he brings kiss. It's where they Uh, go together. Both God's holiness and his mercy are wedded together, welded together at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he shed his blood for us. We look back to that glorious event here on this side of 
the uh, cross and empty tomb, as new covenant believers, our faith is a backwards-looking faith to what Christ has accomplished for us. That's why the gospel message is historical. It reveals to us something that God has done in time for you now. In Abraham's day, as we've considered his story thus far, in Genesis 12 through 17, uh, he, together with the rest of the old covenant saints, the rest of the saints before the coming of Christ, look forward uh, to that one great sacrifice and all of the types and the shadows uh, in the Old Testament point forward to that event where Jesus sheds his blood to purchase a people for himself, where he dies and pays the penalty for you and for me. This looking forward to the cross is especially what marks the passage before us this morning. In some ways, this is an odd, perhaps a bit awkward selection of verses, but they are wonderful in the message that they proclaim to us as God's people. As they proclaim, the message they proclaim to all those who share the faith of Abraham, who are joined to God by grace and a covenant of grace. That's what we'll see really in this passage this morning. Because the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ is the essence of both Abraham's covenant and the new covenant in Jesus. They both bring us into relationship with the holy God through his love and mercy, which come in the context of his holiness and wrath. What we'll see this morning is that both of these covenants, which is really part of the same covenant of grace, they are represented by tangible and glorious signs that highlight that redemption is ours only through the blood of another. That's what we'll see in this passage. A bit of the context here. Uh, Remember, God forged the covenant with Abraham totally by grace. We saw that in Genesis 15 in that odd ceremony of the severing of bulls and other animals in half and then this walking between the two, only it wasn't Abraham and God who walked between the parts. It was just God himself represented by the smoking fire pot and the fire, the the oven, the uh, torch. It was uh, in that covenant or in that moment that God inaugurated. He set in motion his covenant with Abraham. The verses we're looking at this morning and we began to look at last week is where God ratifies his covenant. He's already made the promises. He's slowly, progressively revealing the nature of this covenant to Abraham. And here, uh, everything really is, he puts his stamp of approval. He puts his period at the end of the sentence. Here is where the covenant is put into full force. And what we'll see in the passage again, as I pointed out before us uh, here, is that the grace and kindness of God, together with an emphasis on his holy wrath, is is displayed in the institution of the sign of circumcision. It's a bloody sign that points forth to the bloody cross of Christ through which God claims the people for himself. And so let's jump into this passage. Let's consider what we have before us in these verses. There are three points that will get us through the passage, and then at the conclusion I'll make a few applications for us, especially as New Covenant believers. Let's first look uh, here in verses 9 really verse 9, uh, that this covenant includes a call to generational faithfulness. Now, this is God's covenant. It is a covenant of grace. It is founded upon God's promises, and it is on his shoulders, ultimately, to uh, provide the blessings of this covenant. 
Um, that's why here in these verses, or in verse 9, God tells to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. It's not like this is our covenant. This is mine. I gave it to you as a gift. This is what highlights the gracious nature of this relationship, for that's what a covenant is. It's a relationship that's founded upon promises and also blessings for keeping those promises and curses for breaking those promises. God has already established this covenant on his own gracious, sovereign, uh, merciful, uh, and faithful foundation. In other words, what we find in 1 John chapter 4 is true here in Genesis 17. We are called to love God because he first loved us. The same is true of Abraham. His love, which is expressed in obedience and faithfulness, comes because God first loved him. And so this call to faithfulness here where God says, this is my covenant, you shall keep it, you and all your children. Remember, this is in the context of God's promise to to be faithful until, well, eternity. This generational faithfulness here is embodied in devotion and allegiance. We already saw this in this chapter. If you go back to verse one, this is God's call to Abraham when he appears to him uh, after 13 years or more of absence and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's the essence of, the, of Abraham's response to God's grace here. It's one of devotion, which is what it means to walk before the Lord, and allegiance, living under the rule and authority of this gracious king who has sought him out. And this faithfulness is displayed in this chapter now, in this, this part of it, as the application of the sign of the, circumcision, the, sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. Now, a bit on circumcision. Uh, it wasn't new to uh, Abraham. It wasn't new to this covenant that God made with him. Uh, it was practiced in this part of the world uh, often. Um, it's practiced sometimes in connection with certain religious or pagan worship uh, ceremonies. Uh, but here, uh, God takes what is, in a sense, a common thing, relatively speaking, and he sets it apart for a holy use for God's people to mark them out, to be their own. The same is true in, say, the other signs of the covenant or other sacraments even. Think of the Lord's Supper. We have common bread and common drink, like wine. We have even, uh, in baptism itself, a common element, just water. It's nothing like weird or mystical or um, out of the ordinary. This is an ordinary thing. And here God takes an ordinary thing, just as he did earlier in Genesis with say, the sign of the Noahic covenant, which is a rainbow. It's not like rainbows didn't exist before the flood. No, he took this ordinary thing and he set it, gave it meaning for his people. That uh, He set it apart. He made it special. And he does that here with the action of circumcision. Circumcision here would become the sign of the covenant God makes with Abraham. It would continue on even as God makes a covenant with Moses, it would continue to be a marker of God's people throughout their existence until the new covenant. We'll talk about that at the end, how this sign is uh, transferred or changed to that of baptism. Here, the sign is made with the males of the covenant. Now, just to forestall any uh, thought, this doesn't mean that the women weren't involved or weren't a part of or members of the Abrahamic covenant, they were members, but by virtue of the household. They were a part of the household, and God's covenant grace was given to the household. We'll see that in this passage as well. So this is a call that God makes to Abraham and all his offspring to keep his covenant, 
This involves walking before him in allegiance and devotion, and it involves uh, applying this sign. And note here that as a sign, uh, it points to something. And the thing that it points to, which is God's covenant, founded on God's grace, that gets so closely connected. We, our confession says this is sacramental language. That is, the sign and the thing signified are so closely related that they can be referred to as one another. That's why God can say here, this is my covenant that you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That is, there is such an intimate, close relationship between the sign and the grace it points to. Again, we'll bring this out in a few points of application. But before we get there, let's consider our second point here. As God's people are to be faithful throughout their generations in walking before the Lord and marking themselves out or to receive God's mark uh, here, they are to do so recognizing that this is a sign of God's grace. Um, Whatever you can say about circumcision in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it is... God's gift to his people. Uh, Just as the supper is a gift to us now, just as our baptism is a gift to us, this is a good thing that God provides for his people. Uh, It's good because it preaches the gospel to them and it marks them out. Uh, It's indelible. It uh, is a once-for-all sign. Uh, It's not to be repeated. And it shows that God's grace is forever with his people. It's a sign that highlights God's grace. I think that's really the first thing to notice about it. That circumcision, just like the supper, just like baptism, just like the Passover, just like all of the sacraments that God has used, all of the signs and ordinances he's instituted, it's for the good of his people. And it's to direct their attention, their aim, their focus to his son and to the gospel that his son brings. So what does this sign highlight about God's grace? Well, a few things. Uh, This is first a sign of cleansing. Uh, It is literally a cutting away of the flesh to remove that which is unclean. It's, in other words, a pointing, it's pointing to the work God does in our hearts when he says, I will take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. This sign of cutting away a little piece of skin is symbolic of what Jesus would accomplish on the cross when the whole unrighteous flesh is cut away, as Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. The sign of circumcision is bloody, and it's intentionally so, for it shows us that the old nature, that which is sinful, that which is against God, must be cut away and done away with in order for man to be right with God. And so this sign of circumcision shows us By its bloody means, that blood atonement is necessary if we are to be cleansed from our sins. The fact that this is uh, this is a a rite and an action that is performed on a particular body part of the males of Israel is very important, for it reminds them throughout their generation that as they raise children, as they father children. That just as God's promises are given to his people and passed down from generation to generation, so is the inherited guilt of Adam. It's a reminder to them as they go to have their baby boys on the eighth day circumcised, that sin is passed down through the generations. And that the children of believers, if you could use that language here, the children of the members of the Abrahamic covenant are in, are born in sin and need cleansing. This is what this 
rite of circumcision preaches to everyone in Israel that God's grace that brings about cleansing is unto thousands of generations of those who love me. So it's a sign of cleansing. It's also a sign of consecration. In other words, it's a mark that one receives as a member of God's holy people. Uh, It literally places a mark on the flesh, at least of the males in Israel. And again, this doesn't mean that females are not included. They are included by virtue of belonging to the household. Such was the ordinary way of things at that time. And as we'll see in a bit, because of the greater, greater clarity of the new covenant, by God's mercy... Uh, Females are included in the covenant sign. And so this marks out. It separates God's people from the people of the world. Uh, It defines who the Lord's own are. They have the sign of circumcision. And it's also a sign of communion. It's consecration or uh, uh, cleansing, consecration, communion. That is, they are together marked out as distinct from the world. Even in this passage here, uh, as we get down to verses 22 and following, which we didn't read, but we'll pick up with next week, uh, it's not just Abraham who is circumcised. It's Abraham and his offspring, even Ishmael, and then those in his house, those who have been bought with his money, the servants that he obtained, say, in Egypt and elsewhere, those, in other words, for whom he is responsible, and essentially those who uh, he exists like a father to, they are in his household and therefore are to receive the covenant sign. Uh, Not just, uh, strictly speaking, those born of him, but all those to whom he is a father. Uh, He is to give this sign. And so he does, uh, because this is a sign of communion, that God's people are marked out as distinct from the world, and and they uh, belong to him. He has claimed them. This is a sign that says you are Mine, I give you cleansing. I set you apart. You are my holy people. And then finally, fourthly, this is a sign of grace. Um, I mentioned that, but it bears repeating. This is a sign of God's promised grace through the seed, through the offspring of Abraham. And it's God's grace through judgment. Because again, this is a very bloody sign, intentionally so. And it's a judgment. It points forward to the judgment of the cross, to the cutting off of the old man, to the cutting off of the nature of sin. This is a foreshadowing of the judgment that Jesus will take on behalf of all those who are his people. Thus, there is a blessing tied to those who receive this sign and that it calls them to look ahead to the bloody cross of Christ where he is cut off from the land of the living for the sake of his people. Now, this sign comes with a warning attached to it. We read in these verses here, not only that uh, this will be a sign of the covenant and that every male member of Israel or descendant from Abraham who is eight days old shall be circumcised, uh, but that if you don't do this, uh, verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin He shall be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. Now this shows us that the salvation that this sign pointed to is not to be treated lightly. It's not to be neglected. The writer to the Hebrews will say in Hebrews 2 verse 3, let us basically be diligent knowing uh, the 
Curses attached to the old covenant, say the covenant God made with Moses, knowing that let us be diligent and uh, remain faithful lest we neglect so great a salvation. Here, in failing to not only apply the sign or failing to live up to it, to what it calls you to, to mix it with faith, as we'll see in a bit that it requires, is a failure, is a, is a, war, is a neglecting of the great salvation that God promises to his own. And it's extremely serious. And there's one person who will tell you how serious it is. It's Moses, or at least uh, Moses' wife. Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, we have this very uh, sort of odd, just little couple paragraphs, just uh, as a side note, um, that, that really highlights for us the uh, importance of this sign of circumcision. Um, verse 24 of Exodus 4 says this, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met uh, him, and this is Moses, and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And then it was said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now that's odd, isn't it? And what we see there is the importance of this sign. Moses had failed to give this to his own child. Moses had failed. He, and essentially, he's saying, I'm raising uh, his son. He's essentially saying, I'm, he, Moses is saying, I'm raising my son to be a Midianite, not to be a son of Abraham. And so here in this passage, uh, Zipporah, Moses' wife, is the righteous one and takes matters into her own hands, like literally, and performs this right in order to set things in their proper way. That is here, the application of this sign matters, just as the responsibility of those bearing the sign does. This is not just an external thing that God's people are called to do. This involves much responsibility on the part of those who are circumcised. In, the fact, in, in, the, in, in fact, as you read throughout the whole Bible, God is constantly calling his people, especially the prophets, are calling his people not, just to place their, or not to place their hope in the circumcision of the flesh, but actually to circumcise their hearts because this points to a greater reality, to the true reality of this sign. Uh, it points to a change of heart that can only come by God, his grace and mercy. Actually, you have this, if you read, say, Jeremiah 4, 4, where you literally have the language of God speaking to his people and saying, circumcise your heart, you know, come to me. Uh, you compare that with Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where the Lord says, I will circumcise your hearts. I will do this work. It highlights God's grace in this. God is calling his people who bear the sign of the covenant to believe in the promises of the covenant and to not be one who is merely bearing the sign, but who one who is possessing the inward grace that it signifies. Make good on the promises of God, in other words, by a living faith. Now, this is the responsibility of the one who bears the sign, uh, but also the parents of the one who bears the sign. Uh, just as it was Moses' responsibility in Exodus 4. Uh, this is why children ought be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why? Well, because they belong to the Lord. They're members of his covenant, at least outwardly speaking. And parents are called to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, just as Moses should have done but wasn't. This is why the children are addressed in the covenantal word, say, in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. For the children are called of the congregation who are members of the church because the letter is written to the saints 
say, in Colossae. And yet, among those saints are children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. And fathers, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is a sign that has responsibility attached to it. Actually, in Paul's day, many of the Jews merely relied upon the outward nature of this and basically said, we're children of Abraham. One of the ways they would argue is to say, well, we, we have the circumcision. We, we are, like, literally, you can check. We are children of Abraham. And Paul would say that, ultimately, if you don't believe the gospel, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Because what matters is that your heart is changed. That the sinful nature is cut off, is killed, is crucified with Christ. That is what counts. So this is a sign that God gives to his people to highlight the grace of cleansing, of consecration, of communion, the grace that is his people's by way of judgment, that is that someone else is judged in their place, or should they not mix the sign with faith, they themselves will be judged. It is a sign that is a very, or one that has a weight of responsibility attached to it. It would mark God's people throughout the rest of the Bible until the coming, the living, the dying, and the rising of Jesus. Which then leads us to our applications. A few of them here first. Uh, and these are all basically theological, but uh, they, as you'll see, do have much practical benefit for us. And the first one is this, as we consider what we've seen here. Uh, as we relate the Abrahamic covenant to the new covenant. Um, this is the same covenant in substance. That is the same grace that God gave to Abraham that is signified in the sign of circumcision is the grace that you and I receive because we are children of Abraham by faith. Abraham is our father because we have the same faith that Abraham had. And therefore the covenant that God made with Abraham founded upon grace and mercy is the same covenant that we have, that we're a part of. It's the same in substance. It's administered differently. And that's the distinction here. It's a theological one. It's the same covenant of grace, but different administrations of it. Here to Abraham, it was in type and shadow and anticipating what Christ would do. And the sign attached to it is one that is bloody and looks forward to the bloody cross of Christ. For us in the new covenant, we have... Um, the same grace, but it comes to us in a much more clear way, you could say, in Christ our Lord. We'll see that in a bit. The same in substance. It's also the same in the parties that are included. Here, the believers uh, who, who are made right with God by faith in his promises, like Abraham here, are recipients of circumcision together with their household, together with their children, their offspring. So you have, as like later in this, chapter, uh, or later in Genesis, when Isaac is born, yes, he is circumcised before he professes belief like Abraham did. And so even in the verses before us, you have the description of an infant at eight days old being called to receive this sign of the covenant because they belong to the covenant. And as our shorter catechism says, I think very clearly and very well, very well, I think it's question 95 about who should receive baptism, is it's really answering the same, it would be the same answer for who shall receive circumcision, namely those who belong to the covenant, those who are members of God's church. 
Those who are of the household of faith should receive this covenant. That includes both children and their or both uh, believers and their children. We see this worked out in Acts as God or as Paul goes and preaches and baptizes uh, and even baptizes whole households. Whether there are children there or not isn't really the issue. It's that households are baptized and receive the covenant sign. These covenants are the same in that they both have a distinction between invisible and visible members of the covenant. Like there's the visible church, which you see all of you sitting here this morning, but there is a likelihood that amongst us this morning, there might be someone who doesn't truly possess an inward faith, an inward righteousness, one who truly belongs to the Lord, though you might receive the outward sign of the covenant. The same exists in Abraham's day. Someone could receive, and oftentimes, if you know the history of Israel, this was the case. Many received the sign of the covenant, but truly weren't inwardly born again, didn't have the substance that it pointed to. They themselves didn't have the faith that leads to salvation. And the same is true in the Old Covenant. Together here, as we read in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, even in the book of Hebrews, you have these constant warnings given to those who are members of the church and addressed as the church, who participate in all the ordinances of the church to not neglect so great a salvation, uh, to, to beware that they don't fall away from at least the visible church, which is still very important, that don't have the inward connection to Christ. That's why the church itself needs to be continually called to believe in the gospel. It's why one of my tasks as a minister is to bring the gospel to you each and every Lord's Day, that God would edify you who are saints, and if you're not, call you to himself. This covenant, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant as well, you see in the new, in a progression, an increase in clarity, a greater uh, uh, revelation of the promises and work of God in many ways. A number of uh, three here, or two in, in, in particular first, and that nations are included. Now you get a hint of that in Abraham's covenant, right? Because those in his household, perhaps, that he picked up in Egypt, received the sign and are brought into the covenant. Um, but in the new covenant, you have it even all the more clear as the nations are to be discipled, as the sign of the covenant is to be given to the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, together with the fact that this covenant sign is given to all the members, uh, men and women, male and female, and that baptism, as we'll see, that's our next point. Baptism itself is applied both to males and females. And in the sense that this new covenant sign, which we'll look at in our next point of application, is not bloody. Uh, it looks back to the bloody cross, but it itself is uh, performed by simple water. Which leads us to our next point of application uh, theologically, and that is the relationship between circumcision and baptism. We've already pointed that they point that they themselves look to and highlight the same thing. One points ahead, one looks back. One uh, is bloody before the bloody cross, and one looks back on the bloody cross for the blood that was shed once and for all. It is both point to the same grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, that is ours through both judgment and mercy. As the sign of circumcision was a sign of judgment, something being cut away, the 
outer man, the old nature, being cut off from the land of the living, so is the sign of baptism. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, there are two references to baptism in the Old Testament. And one is to the flood. And the other is to the Red Sea as it engulfed Pharaoh's army. Both instances of judgment. And baptism is a portrayal, just like circumcision, that we are safe in Christ, safely brought through judgment. As Christ himself is cut off in our place, Christ himself is judged on the cross in our place. That's why it is so important and significant that in Colossians 2, which we just read, Jesus' cross is described as his circumcision. That's the language of that passage. The circumcision of Christ, in which the old man is cut away, that is the cross. It is the bloody ordeal, the judgment he he undertook to himself on the cross itself, paying our penalty. He literally put off the body of the flesh by circumcision. And then that's connected as well to our baptism. And we have been buried with him in baptism. In other words, both signs point to the same substance. So they're they're related in that way. In the new covenant, we have, you could say it this way, that baptism replaces circumcision. Though that that, uh, language is perhaps more uh, specific when you say that both of them point to the same thing. It's almost like a, a triangle. At the top, you have the cross of Christ. In the old, you have circumcision pointing to it. In the new, you have baptism. Here, you have these signs both pointing to the same grace in Christ. Also in the New Testament, and again, we don't have uh, as much time here, but you can see where the signs are applied to the same parties. That is to uh, believers and their children, or to their households, It's the best way of putting it that households receive this sign. That's the common feature in the book of Acts. As people become Christians, say like the Philippian jailer, he is baptized together with his household. And again, it doesn't really um, matter whether or not there are young infants eight days old in the house. The point is that households are included. And here, both circumcision and baptism point to cleansing. Baptism, like washing away filth. Um, Circumcision, cutting away the... Uh, unclean part. Uh, They both point to consecration. Baptism marks us out, shows that we belong to the Lord. It is like an indelible mark put upon us. You can only be baptized once, just like you can only be circumcised once. They both speak of communion with God, which is had by God's grace. Uh, We are baptized into the body of Christ, and they both highlight the grace of God that is through judgment, whether judgment of the cross, bloody ordeal, or water. That leads us into our third point of application. That is the responsibility of those who are circumcised or baptized. I should say, first of all, this responsibility is placed upon the parents. Uh, Just as it was here in Exodus 4, just as it is here in Genesis 17, so it's true for us today. As We, who are parents, have our children given to us by God. We are called to raise them in the church, for they belong to the visible church. They are addressed as church members, as pointed out from Colossians and Ephesians. They themselves should be brought up as those who are called to love the Lord. It means for parents, uh, we can pray that God's promises made to our children in baptism would be wonderfully realized. We can call our children to remember 
that they belong to the Lord. They've been marked out to him and it is their responsibility to walk before him, to confess him, to seize hold of the promises God made to them. Otherwise, they bear responsibility and they're on uh, the promises that are made to them of grace through judgment will not avail if they don't mix it with faith. That is, the baptism that, say, a, a boy or girl receives uh, as a child, but who never has faith, becomes not a promise of grace, but an assurance of judgment. So there's great responsibility on the shoulders of parents here, but not just parents. This is not just a load of heap of guilt upon parents. It's for the whole church. That's why whenever we have an infant who's baptized, it's a charge to the parents, but also to the congregation, that we are all called to raise up the next generation in nurture and admonition of the truth. The ultimate family that matters is this family, the household of God, and we're called to care for our covenant children. And it is a responsibility of the visible covenant community to care for one another, even the least of these, the youngest of those who belong to the church. This responsibility is on the parents, it's on the church, but it is still upon the one baptized or circumcised. Uh, They're not uh, absolved if they do not believe. Actually, as I've already pointed out, there's a greater responsibility if you bear the sign. And finally, uh, here a point of, of application is just to highlight again the blessings of covenant Membership. That is, this sign of the covenant, whether it's circumcision or baptism, is a gift of God. And it is gracious. And it is to be received and remembered and lived out. To use the language of our catechism, it is to be improved. That is, we are constantly to draw strength from it for our day to day lives, to live as those who are baptized. And that's a very intentional thing. It's one thing Martin Luther pointed out really well, too, in the Reformation, is that we should consider ourselves not as those who have been baptized or were baptized, but presently, right now, bear the mark of baptism, just as the members of Abraham's covenant would bear the mark of circumcision. So you and I have objectively this promise from God placed upon us in the waters of baptism. You and I are baptized. We belong to the Lord and the sign of the covenant is ours for our good. It promises you in your times of doubt. As you think, do I really have strong enough faith? Could, could God ever truly want me if he knows all about me? And you could get into a subjective spiral and just, just, just under the influence of Satan, I believe, because he is accuser of the brethren, you could just descend into the depths of introspection and subjective wondering of whether or not you truly belong to the Lord. But if you have baptism, and you, which is a simple and objective promise to you, I will be your God, you are my, you are my own, like it. It, yes, faith is required, but even as we're reminded in Scripture, faith as a mustard seed is enough to move a mountain. And here, our baptism comes to us to remind us that God is gracious. God is our God. It's a blessing to us as well in that just as baptism um, and circumcision in the times before Christ uh, it, is initi- it initiates God's people into the covenant community. Uh, it's a reminder that they belong to the Lord. 
these covenantal blessings are also signed and sealed to us, not only in baptism, but also in the supper. As we gather to this table, uh, we gather as the baptized. We come to receive also, just as we did in baptism, the precious promises of God, the substance that he promises to give us that is his grace. If baptism and the sign, again, before Christ, circumcision, it brought people into the household of faith, the supper, uh, it sustains us as those who are members of the household of faith. In other words, it's the one we repeat over and over again. It's the, the constant reminder that God is our God and we are his people. And so as those who have the sign of baptism applied to us, the promises of God, ours, spoken over us, come and receive the substance of those promises yet again in this table. And again, not in an outward way, but inwardly. We eat and drink and receive the body and blood of Christ, but not outwardly, inwardly, as we eat by faith, as we trust in the promises, as we rest again in Christ's self-giving of himself for us. That's why the supper is so important for our spiritual growth. Uh, it reminds us that we belong to the Lord and that he desires our good. Baptism, circumcision, the supper, the Passover, uh, the other sacraments you could say, the Old Testament, these all point to the blessing that God gives to you, his people, as you come by faith and receive it relying upon his promises. Amen. Let's pray. Give us, O Lord, a great faith and trust